you might think, oh, the rates are going to be worse in rural areas or maybe worse in urban areas. You think that the Black population would be higher, but they tend to be pretty much the same throughout the state where Black people are three to four times more likely. Black women, as a Black woman, I'm saying we are more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications, which means not only from being pregnant or giving birth, but also up to a year postpartum. This is the Coleman Associate Innovation Podcast. Innovation? Yeah, innovation. New, original, and creative. This podcast is designed to challenge the way you think about how healthcare is delivered. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fasten seatbelt sign. If you haven't already done so, please take your seat and fasten your seatbelt. Welcome to the Coleman Associates Innovation Podcast, the podcast that brings innovations and best practices in healthcare to your podcasting app. I'm Adrian, your host, and I love talking to today's guest, Ivania Woods from ReproAction about Black infant and maternal health. As many of you know, there is recent funding that just came out from HRSA for many community health centers and other groups to start addressing this problem. And there's just a couple of notes that I wanted to make before we dive into the interview, just to give context to the problem. You know that I love starting with data, so let's start there. Black infant and maternal mortality rates represent a critical and deeply rooted problem in healthcare. Despite advances in medical science, the statistics remain alarming. Black infants in the United States are more than twice as likely to die before their first birthday compared to white infants. Black women also experience disproportionately high maternal mortality rates with a significantly higher risk of dying during pregnancy, childbirth, or in the postpartum period. In the U.S., pregnancy-related death for Black women is three times as likely as for white women. That means that there are 41.4 deaths amongst Black women for every 100,000 births. In addition, a recent CDC study found that 84% of pregnancy-related deaths are considered preventable, so this should be a preventable problem. These disparities are influenced by complex factors, including systemic racism, socioeconomic inequities, limited access to quality health care, and implicit biases within the medical system. Addressing this issue requires comprehensive efforts to dismantle systemic barriers, improve access to culturally competent care, and advocate for equitable healthcare policies. So without further ado, let's dive into the interview with Ivania. Hello, listeners. Yes, I'm Ivania Woods, the Senior Movement Building and Research Manager at ReproAction, and originally the Missouri organizer who launched and led our maternal and infant mortality campaign. So I'm really excited to talk with you today. Great. Do you want to talk a little bit about your work and what you've, what history you've built up in the space around infant and maternal health, just to give our listeners kind of a sense? Absolutely. So I came in in 2017. I was still in grad school and started the job working as a Missouri organizer and wanted to get a sense of what people, what the people in the community wanted to work on. So I put out a survey, started meeting with community leaders and met a woman in Jefferson City who had lost her grandchild to infant mortality and felt really passionate about working on that. And they had just started a now chapter in Jefferson City. And so we joined forces and started screening a film 
on maternal mortality and tying in that conversation with infant mortality. And we went all around the state and screened it and had local people on each of those panels at those screenings. So doulas, midwives, researchers, all types of healthcare professionals involved in that conversation, including community organizers. And it was very fruitful. And that launched the campaign with ReProAction joining forces with the NOW chapter in Jefferson City. And then it just bloomed from there. So in continuing that work, making sure that we were educating people and raising awareness and lifting up other people's work and supporting their work and figuring out how to work in coalition with other leaders who were already doing the work in Missouri, but also working nationwide in providing that education, uplifting, especially with a focus on Black maternal and Black infant mortality rates. So just knowing that rates in the United States are awful, period. (laughs) But when you, so even with, even if we only looked at white women and didn't factor in women of color at all, the rates are abysmal. But if you factor in Black women, then it becomes even more abysmal. And so, yeah, that was, that was the work for many years. And that's how I got started. Great. And I'm sure some of our listeners are picking up, especially if they know me, that you and I both live in Missouri and I'm lucky enough to have Ivania in my social network. But I've been very interested in kind of the work that you've done across Missouri. And Jefferson City is actually the capital of Missouri, which is why that's kind of the central location of a lot of this work that gets done in our state. So we have a bunch of data nerds that listen in on this podcast, specifically the one who is interviewing you right now. So do you want to talk about what you'd like to share with folks about data around infant and maternal mortality, how they relate, what that looks like kind of broadly, and then also specifically in Missouri? Absolutely. So the United States is the wealthiest nation in the world. And we have to position or frame this work, you know, within that framework, the wealthiest nation. We spend the most on healthcare of any nation in the world. And we have the worst infant mortality rates of any developed nation. So there's that. (laughs) And then uh, we think about the focus on Black maternal mortality nationwide on average Black women are two to three times more likely to die. And you'll hear different rates from different people, but the most up-to-date data on average in the whole United States is two to three times. When listening to statistics, you want to tend to who they're talking to and about. So at the state level, it can become even dire in certain states. So Missouri, if we want to talk about Missouri, <laughs> we are ranked 48th overall for healthcare in the country and are ranked 44th in the country for maternal mortality rates. So if we think about that, think critically about that, we think about the funding, what goes into healthcare, the decrease in funding that happens annually in the state and the push for maybe not expanding Medicaid for so long here in Missouri. We just approved that per ballot initiative in 2020 after many years of the state legislature not um, wanting to do that for us. And also since the passing of Medicaid expansion with every effort um, that has been put forth to prevent 
that from going into effect, the passing of Medicaid expansion, then you learn really quickly, you can pick up on why the rates are what they are here in Missouri and why the healthcare situation is so dire. So if you think about healthcare overall in Missouri, we're in a bad place, right? So the, it shouldn't come as a surprise that we're also in a bad place when it comes to maternal and infant mortality rates. Here in Missouri, we're actually three to four times more likely Black women, as a Black woman, I'm saying we are more likely to die from pregnancy-related complications, which means not only from being pregnant or giving birth, but also up to a year postpartum is what we want to focus around. And a lot, most of the deaths happen within six weeks of giving birth. And luckily, I would say, because we have a very interesting state legislature this past session, (laughs) they actually passed a bill where healthcare postpartum would be extended up to 12 months for people on Medicaid. And that is delightful. We've been fighting for that for so long. It it feels anticlimactic in a way. It was like, we never thought we'd get it. Now we got it. And then it's like, but there's so much more to fight for. So I'm, I am overjoyed by it, but also like, oh, so much more left to do. That's the energy that in, in me right now. But yeah. So that's where we are in Missouri. I just wanted to hone in on one thing that you had said, which I think is true. Is So you had talked about how the U.S. is the country who spends the most on healthcare in the world, right? I think the last statistic I looked at is we spend about 200% more than the next highest country. And you were talking about how sometimes these initiatives are underfunded. And so can you talk a little bit about how we can be a country that spends the most in the world and yet we have... We have programs that are not being funded in what you're seeing that impact infant and maternal health. Okay. How can I do this without going on a rant? Let's see. A partial rant. A wee bit of a rant, right? So we know that our healthcare system is trash because there are other countries who are doing healthcare better than we are, right? And they have universal healthcare. That phrase has become like communism back in like the mid or early 1900s was it's like a bit toxic in a way where there's this toxicity associated with the concept of universal health care with it you get your taxes going to what they should go to like we're humans we're going to get sick we need health care and also with the way that our health care system is set up there really isn't motivation or drive for preventive care and that is an issue because people often wait because of cost until things uh, go way past where, where procedures and treatments are more expensive. Their care becomes more expensive. So where initially they may have postponed an appointment because they were worried about cost. Now the costs just go up even more because your situation has become more expensive to treat. Now, the last thing because I'm trying not to go on a rant. This is why I'm talking so slowly because <laughs> the thoughts are racing and I'm like, calm down, calm down. Okay. And so the, the last thing I'll bring up is that, so we have all these barriers to healthcare that come together, but then there's also these other things like racism, uh, specifically in this context, medical racism, but also a larger context, racism in society having an impact on the care that we receive or do not receive (laughs) the physicians we have access to, the care we have access to, like all of these things get voted in your gender 
and your physician or healthcare provider's believability in what you're saying and the knowledge that you, the credit that they give you for the knowledge you have in your body. So there's all these relationships that create this complexities, you know, that come with the history of this country being rooted in genocide and slavery and evolving into where we are now, where, you know, it can be complicated just in social relations between people and those social relations don't evaporate when you go to the doctor's office or when you try to seek healthcare. So it's within the medical system or within the healthcare system, you see these larger societal things kind of like in this microcosm in the healthcare system. If we want to see the healthcare system as a microcosm of large society, just manifest in really specific ways and impact people's um, ability to receive treatment and care and that they need to be healthy. Yeah. And I, I know many of our folks on in the community health center world can totally appreciate that. And why I'm so excited to kind of talk through this stuff with you is one is I want to hear like what you see since you do so much grassroots work in terms of barriers for folks that relate to maternal and infant mortality, but you know, other barriers that you see to healthcare. And particularly, I think this is going to be useful for our listeners because there is this, I'll call tear amazing transition that's happening in community health and outpatient care in general, but it's all about what's called an alternative payment model where folks are going to get paid for quality of care and keeping patients healthy versus seeing more patients, right? And this is happening faster in certain states, slower in other states, but it seems to be a pretty steady drumbeat in terms of how we're kind of moving forward. So I'm really curious about what barriers you see to healthcare so that we can kind of, and any potential solutions that you would suggest. And I'm sure our listeners are also going to be thinking about how do we start addressing those kinds of barriers? Okay. So the first thing that comes to mind to me Oh, we have barriers, so many. I mean, we, we talk about the healthcare system and how it's tied into politics, of course. Um, the personal is political and the political is personal. We know that. Hmm, where do I want to start? I'll start with, okay, so we have transportation barriers, right? I mean, I spoke about the funding. That is a barrier, funding to healthcare. And okay, I'll go back into funding a little bit because I want to emphasize this point. So in Missouri, We have had, at the start of my work in 2017, I think there had been maybe like six hospital closings in the state that created a situation where rural people had to travel, like pregnant people in particular, had to travel an hour both directions to get care. So we're talking if an emergency happens, and um, you're having a pregnancy complication, at bare minimum, it's going to be an hour because you got to get in the car. That's the drive. That's like you got to get to the car, get in there. Once you do that, it's going to take you an hour to get to a facility that can deal with the situation that you're in. And then the travel time back is another hour, right? And that just creates a dangerous situation for folks. So, Keep that in mind. When funding is decreased for healthcare, when it comes to hospitals in particular, we can think about how clinics close because they're underfunded anyway, right? They're going to be some of the first facilities to close. And then we, in hospitals, when they're defunded, the very 
first unit they get rid of is the maternity ward. That goes on the on the chopping block. And it's just really interesting to me that we're in this context of, you know, pregnancy, us losing options while healthcare, specifically to um, care and treat for pregnant people, is diminishing. And then you have this situation where people are having to travel really far to get there, which ties us over into like transportation. But all of these things are connected. I want to just emphasize that. So you end up with that situation for rural folks. But then in urban areas, how transportation impacts them is that a lot of the facilities aren't in areas that Black women live in or reside in. So that transportation funding, I brought up medical racism, which is actually a a huge thing. Uh, Medicaid expansion when dealing with people who can't afford health care that they may need. And then thinking about, well, Medicaid and Medicaid expansion. And Medicaid expansion was to cover the gap of people who wouldn't qualify for Medicaid, but also, you know, don't have access to insurance. And so Medicaid expansion is really helping them out. I haven't thought about Medicaid expansion in a while as far as statistics go. So those numbers have far escaped me. But yeah, so, and then the, I'm going to classify this as a barrier, but there is a resistance to evidence-based treatments, procedures, ways to address situations. We're in this era where it's simultaneously, we need more research and more studies to determine where we should go. And there's an overabundance of research at this point and people still failing to act who are in positions to act, right? And so while we want our solutions to be evidence-based, we also need people to be actively working to address what's happening. And we have all the research that tells us what we need to be doing to address maternal and infant mortality rates. Um, how to specifically address it in um, with brown and black people, indigenous folks, and things cost money, right? And so you can tell a lot about a country or about the leaders of a country based on what they're willing to spend money on. And it just looks like they're not willing to spend money on pregnant people and babies in this country. And in, in this work, one of the earliest things I came across when I was you know, educating myself about infant mortality was that infant mortality, a lot of health leaders around the world see that as the canary in the coal mine for like the overall like health and well-being of people in a in a country or in a space in a region. And it's indicative of of what it looks like here. Like if you're neglecting pregnant people and babies at the most critical or at their most vulnerable points. Um, so you talked about transportation and the difference between urban and rural. Um, my guess is, so some of the other ones that I often see is like inability to get an appointment, even when there are places that you can go. That's something that I tend to see. And like on the community health side is like making sure that there's access, making sure that um, there's people that are nearby that you can go see that we're able to attract providers, particularly to rural areas is a really big deal and retain folks. So... Other barriers, I can think of two that I want to get into because the barriers you can, you can really get um, minute and, and, and get into the weeds. But I think major ones, um, when we talk about access and we're talking about people being able to get in 
to see a, a qualified person who can help them or especially if they need emergency care, because we can talk about the humanity of pregnant people and babies, but there's also physicians are people too, and they are caring for uh, these people. And so you need people who are qualified. What the situation in Missouri is, is that Missouri is not a good state to practice medicine if you are a physician. I say that not as a physician, but as someone who looks at how much they get paid and how much other states and <laughs> how much you can receive in other states for doing the job that you can get here. And also the difference in pay if you work in an urban hospital versus if you work in a rural hospital. And it does affect the care that people receive. And so where, if you don't know that, you may think, well, doctors are well-paid everywhere. Well, they are better paid in some places than others. And that also explains why retaining, well, recruiting and retaining doctors is an issue in Missouri. There are programs that aim at helping with that, like serving in a rural area for so long and your student loans are forgiven, which serves as an incentive, but it's not enough, right? Um, and you have to be like community oriented in that way to be like, okay, the first couple of years we're going to get paid, not much of anything, but my student loans will be paid off versus I could go to New York and make way more money and still pay off my loans and live the life that I want to live. And so you have those things to consider. Um, I think I folded those two in. I wanted to get in just our ability to retain and recruit physicians so that they are available for folks and that their expertise is where people need them to be. Oh, this was the second thing, the last thing <laughs> that I want to get into. When speaking about access, so recently there, well, it's still a case um, currently, but there's a case in Texas of a family, a Black family who had their baby taken from them because they opted for a midwife to care for them. And they went to the physician's office because their child um, for a checkup and their child was diagnosed with jaundice and the physician gave them a course of action. And they said, okay, we'll consult with our midwife. And the midwife contacted the doctor and let him know that um, he was stressing the family out, that they were going to do the care through her and not go through him. And he called Children's Protective Services or Child Protective Services. This just depends on where you are. It has different names in different states. And um, I'm giving you the short version, but they showed up with the police after a couple of attempts, took the child from the parent. As far as I know, the parents have not gotten their child back. And this is filed under neglect, Right. And so the reason a Black family would use a midwife is because actually midwives work really well in servicing people in rural areas and Black people, especially in addressing maternal and infant mortality rates. They actually close the gap when you think about people who have sought out, who use midwives and, and doulas in conjunction, or even like doulas can increase the ability for um, Black people to survive birthing in a hospital setting or home setting. And historically, physicians being that primarily they are white men <laughs> have been at odds with midwives and was the reason it was outlawed in the early 1900s. And we had to fight for it to get it back where, where we do have it back. And in Missouri, I believe it was illegal up to 2007. So it's, it's fairly recent here where uh, midwives have been built up. And so you end up in a situation too where you have 
things like that affecting people's ability to care for themselves, where there's this, you know, I'm a physician, I'm trained, and I know better than some midwife. And there's different types of midwives, by the way. In this particular case, it would be a certified professional midwife. It means that they specialize in home births, and you also have certified nurse midwives who specialize in hospital settings. And and any nurse could tell you about the hierarchy involved there between doctors and other healthcare professionals. <laughs> As a nurse, just go back and listen to some of our earlier episodes. So that's always fun and fun in the most, in the wildest way, because these are people's lives. This is their baby. This It's really frustrating because when we talk about evidence-based care, evidence-based care says that midwifery is actually a viable in in Soft. It's a viable option for Black people, especially how we're treated. And then, and then you have this culmination of this in this particular case down in Texas unfolding right before our eyes. And it just lets me know that progress isn't linear, right? We just have a couple of minutes left, although I could talk to you all afternoon about how I think about this stuff. So like I mentioned, most of our listeners are folks who work in the community health space and many of them are directly patient facing. What would you like them to take away from this and maybe change in their organizations to do their part to make infant and maternal mortality for Black people better? And also, I guess, like the other thing I think about, just this is my my general thought is like, you either are making disparities worse or you're making them better with every single action that you take. And so what would you like to see our listeners do differently as a result of this conversation? Well, I guess you could sum it up in a phrase that we like to use, like trust Black women. People know their bodies. They're in their body. They know their body better than you could. I've been thinking a lot lately about the way that we have this universal approach to the human body. And yeah, if you had asked me this question on a different day, I would have given you a different answer. But in this moment, I've been thinking a lot about that. And I want people to consider this. When you are learning anything related to people, to human beings, there's going to be variation. And understanding that just because they teach science as if it is this hard and unmovable thing that everybody has a heart that works like this and these organs and these muscles and these, you observe it all the time, but you still behave as if we're all the same and all of our bodies function the same, right? Like everybody's appendix isn't even on the same side of their (laughs) abdomen, right? And so just a quick note for our listeners, if you want to learn about how frequently you find a left-sided appendix, check out the show notes. Things like that, where just keep in mind that while in most cases your training will apply, sometimes, sometimes it's not. If healthcare is your calling, if being a healthcare professional is your calling, then you have your gut that you can trust, that you can listen to, but also you have patients that you can trust and that you can listen to. Um, and in, and being in a community setting and just provides for more intimacy, I think like whenever I can avoid, I try to pick like the facilities I go to based on the care that I need. And the thing about a community setting is that you can, you have more leeway or more time or not necessarily more time, but I guess like more opportunities to get to know your patients, get to know the patients, get to know them outside of a, of a clinical setting and um, know them and their lifestyles and what they're doing. And so just listening. Sometimes, you know, the I think the 
no, I don't think the state's report that came out last year that said that pointed to mental health as the number one reason in Missouri for maternal mortality, which was a way for them to get around racism being the cause, in my opinion. <laughs> um, but I mean, yeah, okay. So even if we if we base it off that, then we we have a way in there. We're like, okay, well, what's causing what's causing this mental distress? And oh, look, racism. And so like trying to see the individual, right? Just, I guess, thinking more critically about how you socially assess people in front of you and being actively aware of that can prevent and help you address a lot of problems. If you can question yourself and know in the moment, like, wow, why do I think that about this person? Is it because they're black? Is it because they're a woman? Is it because they're pregnant? Is it because, you know, of their class, that they're poor or what have you? And so you assume things about them and we all do like our brain loves shortcuts just like be aware of your brain trying to take shortcuts and just take the extra moments ask questions and get and get into the weeds with your patients directly or indirectly because sometimes you know people will patients will tell you what they think you want to hear that lab code effect is real or what they think is the right answer or a good answer. And you just have to combat that in a way and just do your best to make them comfortable and so that they can be honest with you when they come in to see you. But yeah, that is just like, yeah, avoid the universal ploy of just treating everyone the same because different people are going to need like different types of um, interactions with you to not only feel safe with you in your office, but once they leave, are they going to take their medication you prescribed? <laughs> they don't feel like you are trustworthy or that you are kind or that you have your their best interests in mind. They're just not going to do it. I totally agree with everything that Ivania said. And I was really struck by talking about the idea of so much of this comes down to building better relationships with patients. I know we here at Coleman Associates know that because doing something simple like decreasing no-show rates, which is of course very impactful on the financial side, but it, it's actually just all about building relationships with patients. And that that's true as we look at quality measures and as we look at how we start closing the gap on disparities that we're seeing. So a huge thanks to Ivania for sharing her work with us. I can already tell that I'm going to have so many show notes with additional resources for folks to check out. Make sure that you like and subscribe to the Coleman Associates Innovation Podcast so that you never miss an episode. If you or someone you know should be interviewed for an episode, shoot us an email at notify at colemanassociates.com or reach out to us on social media. To keep up with all the Chispa happenings, follow us on LinkedIn. A big shout out to Jonathan at Bionic Squid and Nikolai for all of their podcasting help. We'll see you next time. Uh-huh.